The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. We're talking about these companies really, really moving quickly to change their strategy, to change their product lineup. And that's also one of the challenges. The legacies can't move that fast to change products uh, if their life depended on it. And that's an issue specifically for the China market. Hello and welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Katrina Hamlin, a columnist at Reuters Breaking Views, which is the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from Hong Kong. For this week's episode, I sat down with Tu Li, the founder of consultancy Sino Auto Insights. Tu has been tracking the rise of China's electric vehicles for years, and having just moved from Beijing to Detroit himself, he has an eagle-eye view of this fast-moving story. When Tu started working in China in 2010, China's electric car sales weren't much more than zero, and the country was just starting to roll out subsidies. Today, annual sales are closing in on 7 million, and I think for our readers, that wasn't even the most memorable headline this year. China is now the world's largest auto exporter, as well as the world's largest auto market. Although legacy automakers still have a role to play, homegrown champions such as BYD, Aon, NIO and Xpeng are outselling foreign brands. And there's so much going on beneath those headlines, too. So, too, thank you very much for helping us to make sense of it all. Trina, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Too, when we first started talking a few years ago, I think, Chinese EV makers, and to be fair, also Chinese gas guzzlers, were for the most part pretty homebound. And even in the home market, I don't think the big multinational marks felt that they were anything like an existential threat. But things are changing now. Why are Chinese EV makers doing so well? I can't pinpoint the exact reason why EV sales grew so substantially over the last three or four years, uh, but I can point to one thing. Tesla rolling job number one off uh, the Shanghai Gigafactory in late 2019. And if you look at 2019, 2020, 2021, 22 sales, uh, you see that hockey stick. You had mentioned uh, that uh, earlier that China is the number one automotive market. They've been the number one automotive market since 2009. And it also is coincidentally when they started investing heavily into the battery sector and the electric vehicle sector. And so I think through patience, persistence, and continued investment, uh, this is the result of what the what they've been doing for the last several years. And what about the tech? Is there a tech advantage for the Chinese EV makers at this point? There's a substantial tech advantage for the Chinese EV makers. I would also uh, put Tesla into that bucket as well, because I've spoken with several Chinese EV uh, Chinese EV maker executives, and they all tell me that the majority of their engineering teams are software developers. And so if we turn that into a ratio, I would say in traditional legacies, it's the 80-20 rule where 80% of their engineers are traditional automotive engineers and 20% or less than are going to be software developers or software engineers. Flip that around in a Chinese EV company and a Tesla, whereas 70, 80, 90% of their engineers are software engineers and 10 to 20% are traditional automotive engineers. And so that tech advantage 
and remember we're moving from analog where it's petrol engines to digital and effectively it's a battery and electric motor that power these evs and it's a digital world now things move much faster in the digital world and so the advantage is significant but it's not insurmountable when we say it's not insurmountable how difficult would it be to emulate that or or to catch up so if the Automotive legacies had more flexibility. They didn't have to sell more ICEs to fund their EV future. Then I think they could dedicate resources and capital to to hiring more software engineers, right? So there's that balance. And I think because of the size of these companies, having 10,000 software engineers would create a pretty significant opportunity to catch up. But I think with the legacies, it's not just... uh, a skill gap. It's also a culture um, that's not allowing it to make these changes, a risk-averse mindset, management that don't have the necessary experience. And then also just the massive size of these companies, it's like turning the Titanic. And so there are numerous changes. I'll give you a quick example. The management teams of most of these legacies, whether they're European or American, Japanese or Korean, they're mostly intact. And I would say specifically in China, they went from more than 50%, 60, 65% of the market to less than 50 this year. Okay. But no one's on the management teams of any of these legacies have been pushed out. No, there have been no technology experienced executives hired in any massive way. There have been one or two hires, but the the people that got you in the mess, they're supposed to get you out of it. I don't see how they can reconcile that. So I think that's the other huge challenge for them. How do you reconcile that with the fact that there are sort of legacy Chinese brands Chinese brands that that started making internal combustion engines, not battery power cars, that are doing quite well in this space as well now. How do we explain that? So I think that I would make a different distinction. I, I wouldn't say they're doing quite well. I would say they're competitive. If we look at sales volume consistently, month over month, year over year, it's really BYD and Tesla. And then, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, GAC, for example, has its Aeon brand. That, that's selling extremely well, right, in the Chinese market. It is. It is. But um, it's, it's competitive. It's not head over. It's not head and shoulders from a sales standpoint than mm. really that many other players. And so, again, uh, it's Tesla, BYD, and then really everyone else. And what we're seeing is probably a bit of regionalization. So GAC probably sells pretty well in Guangzhou, right? And then Beijing Automotive and those companies and the the companies based in Shanghai probably sell pretty well in in those areas or that city. But there hasn't really been any runaway winners with the exception of BYD. Even Tesla is chasing BYD in the China market. So uh, I would look at it like clear winner, BYD, clear winner Tesla with the caveat or asterisk being with price cuts and then a bunch of other companies that are kind of roller coaster because Neo earlier was struggling, Xpeng has been struggling and so we're talking about 
these companies really, really moving quickly to change their strategy, to change their product lineup. And that's also one of the challenges. The legacies can't move that fast to change products uh, if their life depended on it. And that's an issue specifically for the China market because the Chinese consumer is uh, very unique relative to the European and the U.S. consumer. And within the China market, do you see any legacy brands that are really trying to make that shift and, and perhaps even starting to succeed a little bit? I, th- I would point at Toyota. I would point at General Motors and, and, and Volkswagen. Volkswagen is struggling the worst because of their tremendous fall off on ICE sales because the Volkswagen brand was the no- number one selling brand in China for a number of years. And now it's BYD. So that is not only a, a real kind of disheartening uh, happening, but also a psychological, uh, it, it's pretty disheartening psychologically for Volkswagen, I think. And for, that, for, for it to happen effectively over a five-year period, I think they're licking their wounds and trying to regroup. But again, the, the speed of the China market the number of brands, the number of products, because let me also uh, remind you that Volkswagen plays in the sub 300,000 RMB price point. So less than $45,000. Very competitive, right? Yes. That's where China EV Inc. lives effectively. Uh, BYD, Xpeng, uh, GAC, they all have substantial products, competitive products in those price points small suvs or small uh, sports utility vehicles and small crossovers that what uh, that the chinese consumer prefer so and you mentioned uh, toyota and gm as well why did you pick out those names if we look at the opposites Stellantis and ford have really altered their china strategies and effectively left the market Whereas Mary Barra, I think late last year, middle of last year, she had um, done a presentation and said, by 2025, GM is going to have 10 electric vehicles for the China market. So uh, off the Ultium platform, which is their EV platform, their global EV platform. And so um, I also see that Toyota still has significant share in the China market. It, it hasn't fallen off as much as a GM or a Volkswagen. And what we're starting to see is uh, a trend towards more plug-in hybrids, which is something that Toyota is very, very good at. And so I don't underestimate Toyota ever because they're a machine. They get it. They'll eventually get it. This is a huge, huge, huge challenge for them because, again, we're moving from analog to digital. So it's not something that they can create an efficiency and just be better than everyone else at, like uh, like in the past with their lean management. But, you know, if, if Toyota makes a decision, the entire industry really stands up and pays attention. Okay, so it's it's too early to count out all of these legacy brands and it's some of the success that these Chinese companies have had in their own market is to do with, you know, the specific circumstances in China and the Chinese consumers' preferences. That's my takeaway from from some of what you said, at least. So how well then do the Chinese companies' advantages translate when they go overseas? And maybe we could think about Europe first, because there's a lot of kind of paranoia and angst about what's going to happen there at the moment. I can give you two anecdotes. Um, I was in Shanghai in April for the auto show, and I 
three weeks ago, I was in Munich for the Munich Auto Show. And in Shanghai, there was a number of European executives that probably hadn't been back to China because of zero COVID policy for three, four, five years. Uh, what I saw was eyes wide open, uh, jaws dropped, uh, a bit of shock, a bit of awe that, number one, the number of electric vehicles driving around the city of Shanghai. Number two, at the auto show in Shanghai, getting in these vehicles, you know, closing the door, listening to that sound, you know, touching the screens and being in shock about how they've caught up. It, it's not about, oh, we still have an advantage. No, they've, they've caught up and they've actually surpassed legacy auto in a lot of ways. Again, in the digital space where it might not matter as much in Europe and the United States, but in Munich, I, it was the rest of the rank and file that weren't able to travel to Shanghai. China EV Inc., China Battery Inc., there were five or six Chinese battery companies that were there. There were two autonomous vehicle companies that I, two or three autonomous vehicle companies. There were some uh, chip companies, chip design companies that were there. So Chinese sector specific companies uh, were in full force in Munich. So I think that they've come to this realization that, wow, if we, and, and this goes back to uh, Ursula von der Leyen's uh, statement about cheap Chinese EVs and how they want to protect the market. But to me, that says more about the lack of competitiveness of the um, European EV offerings in Europe than it does about the Chinese EVs. Uh, so, so I think she wasn't being completely uh, honest about the, the, the risk involved here. So it seems like the signals from Europe are, are quite discouraging at the moment for Chinese car makers. There is that you know, perception of, of there being a threat and the possibility then of, of policies being less welcoming than one might have hoped. If, if Europe doesn't sort of open up as, as an exciting opportunity for them, where else do you think they might go? Where do you think they could find success? So BYD has entered uh, almost 60 markets. I just saw today that they entered Bolivia. So Latin America, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia are uh, logical points of entry. Again, because a lot of the Chinese EV brands play in the less than... 40,000 euro price point. So it makes a lot of sense to go into these emerging markets to try to gain um, share, take away share. Traditionally in Southeast Asia, and you know this well, Katrina, uh, it's the Japanese brands that are strong in Thailand and Indonesia. But um, I think the Chinese brands see a ton of opportunity. BYD most definitely sees an opportunity. And, and to your point about the EU potentially throwing up protectionist measures, I'm hearing from my German contacts that that likely is going to be more bark than bite. But it's also because Volkswagen has announced that in 2024, they're going to be shipping a Chinese-made EV over to Europe. And so I think uh, the German government might not allow for any substantial protectionism to be put in place in 2024 because 
and, and I don't know why this is, but it's going to take 13 months to investigate that. But um, I digress. Okay, so Asia is one place, Latin America maybe another. The US, is that too much given the IRA and everything that's going on there? So if we look at the three largest markets, China, the US, and then Europe, Europe was around 11 or 12 million vehicles last year. The United States was closer to 14, and then China was around 22 million units sold. The three largest markets, these markets, you can't export your way or import your way into a leadership position. So what we'll likely see is a few Chinese EV companies enter U.S. market from an import standpoint, eat the large tariff just to get a feel for the, the market, just to create awareness, excitement. And if you look at some of these companies like a NEO, like a BYD, all you need to do is look at their, their jobs board and they're hiring in the United States or hiring in California. So um, they're undeterred. They had to reassess for sure. But long-term, if they build, there, there's a high likelihood, in my opinion, that BYD builds a factory in Mexico. Okay. Because number one, it allows access to the U.S. market without tariffs uh, from a finished goods standpoint. And then number two, it's entry into Latin America, again, uh, an emerging market, and it's an easy, easy trip via train to South America where, you know, a $20,000 or a $15,000 seagull would likely sell really, really well. Uh, so there's, there's no doubt that China EV Inc. will enter the U.S. market likely five or six by 2025. It's, um, it's clear from, from everything you're telling us that these companies are extremely ambitious. And I think that goes beyond uh, their sort of geographic ambitions, right? Like some of the business models are just amazing. Neo, for example, has decided to launch a phone. We have unexpected partnerships like Xpeng and Volkswagen. Um, and, um, you know, some very capital intensive projects too. But many of these companies are, are not yet profitable. Neo among them, but certainly not the only one. Do you think there's a danger that some of these brands overreach? I think 10 years from now, uh, I'll be able to tell you exactly which ones <laughs> overreached, but uh, I think that's part of their culture. I think that, you know, Katrina, you and I have been in Asia for quite a long time. So uh, we know that China has ultra competitive markets in multi-sectors. And in order to gain that brief advantage, you have to um, you have to eat risk for breakfast and you have to try new things and you have to uh, launch new products. That's that mindset. Now, in the automotive sector, you also have to commit billions of dollars of capital in order for some of those products and services to work through, like a NEO with swapping. But they're bringing that tech mindset that I think really throws a lot of the legacy auto for a loop. And they're bringing that tech speed and the China speed. And this is where it might seem like Legacy Auto has been caught flat-footed, but they're just not able to gain momentum or any speed because these Chinese companies, along with Tesla, are moving so fast. And again, because the primary uh, parts 
of an EV are just simplified. It's a motor, it's a battery, and then everything else. And I'm oversimplifying this myself, but everything else is software, which they can change through an over-the-air update. And so I think it's an exciting time to be in the space. I'd be very cautious if I was Legacy Auto. And if I was one of the OEM CEOs, I would be uh, really, really trying to uh, speed up all the changes I want to make to the company in order to be competitive globally after 2030. You alluded to what I think is is maybe the most difficult question in, in this space. Like at this point, I think, you know, you and I and many other people are, are pretty confident that the electric power chain is, is here to stay and it's going to be very important. And the Chinese brands are, are going to play a huge role in that. But there are so many of them, literally hundreds, and they can't all survive. What sort of framework do you use when you're trying to figure out who are the, the winners and the losers going to be, a- apart from, you know, as you said, waiting 10 years <laughs> to see who's left? I first look at access to capital. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. NEO, uh, Xpeng, and Li Auto are all, all publicly traded in the United States. So I think they have, uh, they're very liquid. They have some access to capital. Um, there's a desire from Western investors to, to invest in these companies. But I also see that there are some challenges because some of these companies will try to enter foreign markets with the Chinese mindset, as opposed to trying to understand what the local market needs are. And I'll give you, for instance, in in the United States, it's one single market. And so I think the marketing is, is a bit simpler. But when we talk about Southeast Asia and Europe, Europe, for example, 27 countries. So when we say Europe, we can't enter Europe. We have to enter Germany. We have to enter Italy. And having a marketing uh, brand plan needs to be completely different. Languages are different. Cultures are different. Habits are different. And Southeast Asia is the same way. And where a lot of these EV companies will enter and fail, it's likely because they haven't thought through the individual country strategies and don't have enough capital to, to really compete against the BYDs who's likely already in the market. And the other part of BYD is that they they sell a couple hundred thousand cars a month, which creates scale. Okay. Scale equals flexibility. Think Toyota with flexibility. And so this and, and this is what Tesla is also trying to do. They're trying to create more scale and so they can amortize their fixed costs over a larger number of sold units. And again, um, that's the main difference between, you know, technology companies and, and these EV companies. They still need to understand that building a factory in India, in Indonesia, in Mexico is still a billion dollar capital expense. And so, so I think what we'll likely see is a dozen, two dozen EV companies enter a lot of different markets, but maybe five, six stick and are actually competitive. So, um, I don't, you know, outside of the Neos, the Xpeng's, and Li Autos, uh, I'm anxious to see which other Chinese EV makers want to take that risk and plunge. Because remember, this is a 22 million unit market, the Chinese market. And so, if you could grab market share in that market, you'd be doing pretty well without having to enter any foreign market. And that's Li Auto's strategy currently. Okay. So, if I put you on the spot, 
and ask which names you think are going to come out of this on top. What do you reckon? I think BYD is the clear winner. I think Tesla is also going to be a major player. Now, I know Tesla is not a, a, a Chinese company per se, but when 40, 50% of their, uh, their production comes out of China, it creates a lot, a lot of, uh, of flexibility. And, and um, you know, the EU is looking effectively uh, at Tesla as a Chinese company. Okay, so I think those two are going to be clear winners. I think that Liotto, who is current domestically, I'm curious to see uh, when they will enter a foreign market. Neo has uh, been very, very aggressive with branding and marketing in Europe. And so they also recently uh, slashed prices on all their products pretty significantly by, by about $6,000. So I think that they're looking at their data and they know they need to sharpen their pencil. And so I think in some of the brands that haven't uh, even launched yet, uh, a Jiyue, which is the joint venture between Jili and, and Baidu, I think that has a chance to be a pre pretty big winner in the China market and eventually go abroad. Um, I'm anxious to see, or, or I'm curious to see what Xiaomi is going to be launching in the 2024. Yes, uh, yeah. the phone maker. And so, um, you know, bottom line, the, the foreign legacy auto needs to step up in a big way. And, you know, to summarize some of the challenges, but Jim Farley late, late last year said that it takes 40% less labor to build an electric vehicle. So if we do basic math, the makeups of these foreign legacies over the next five to seven years is going to completely change. It has to if, in order for them to be successful. I wasn't going to ask you about Tesla today, but since we're counting it now among the Chinese automakers, I will. Um, pseudo, pseudo. <laughs> Uh, so, so Tesla obviously has a, has a enormous factory in Shanghai, which, which accounts for most of its production now, I believe. Right, uh, the Chinese market is very important to it, and it's it's exporting a lot of its cars from there too. But it seems to me that China perhaps needs Tesla a little bit less than it did in the past. You know, there was a point where having Tesla's factory there was a material step in terms of scaling up the Chinese EV industry, and now the numbers are there perhaps even without Tesla. Does that change anything? What, what do you think might happen next with Tesla in China? So with Tesla, I know that they're also trying to expand their factory. But if we look at what's happening outside of China, um, there's been a rumor about building in Indonesia, building in India, and then uh, they've announced already that factory in Mexico. These are all low-cost countries, similar from a pricing or cost standpoint to China. And so I think they also see and are trying to mitigate some risk because if they put all their eggs in the China basket and something changes in a significant way, it creates a lot of risk for them from a global manufacturing footprint. And so, um, but, but I, would, I would say this, because the Chinese economy is still very delicate and uh, on, a, on, on a downturn, and there are no other clear winners outside of BYD, I would, I would argue that uh, the Chinese government still needs a Tesla brand to be strong in China to bring attention to the rest of uh, the EV makers. And I don't see that changing in any significant way over, you know, through 
through late 20, uh, late 2020s, because we're not going to see the 100% year-over-year growth that happened in 20, 2020 and 2021. And in order to penetrate into these lower-tier cities, we're going to need a bit of flash. Uh, and I think that Tesla brings that uh, to the Chinese consumer. So, Yeah, Tesla as a Chinese company is, is going to be a great uh, takeaway from this, from this discussion. Before we wrap up, I have just one more question for you, I think. We're getting towards the end of the year. And at Breaking Views, when we get towards the end of the year, we start to think about predictions for the year ahead. <laughs> do you have any predictions for this industry in China next year? What, what do you think will be the big headlines? I think that by middle of 2024, uh, Brian Gu, the vice chairman of Xpeng, he said that China is moving into the smartification phase. So I'm going to... Smartification. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to need to spell that out. What do we mean by smartification? So smartification means... Uh, uh, the connected vehicle that has uh, ADAS, which is uh, which stands for uh, Advanced Driving Assist Systems. So there's four or five levels. There's five levels, and with level five being a robo-taxi, there's no steering wheel, there's no brake or gas pedal. Currently, Chinese vehicles, smart Chinese vehicles, are like an Xpeng or a Neo or a Liato. They have level two which could be adaptive cruise control or some some sort of uh, self-navigation through certain use cases being, you know, there's a traffic jam, it's not going very fast, so I'm going to let the car drive itself. I'm, I still need to look at the road and be aware I'm still responsible, but those types of features create the smartification. And, you know, with AI becoming a major, major sector of emphasis or a point of emphasis in China, we're going to see more of that enter the vehicle as well. And so Brian Gu said, we're getting into the smartification. And by mid-2024, we're going to see a lot more smartification features from Huawei, from Xpeng, from Neo. I think BYD is finally moving more focus into that as well. And this again, is where the Chinese consumers live. The top two things that they look for in an electric vehicle or a vehicle in general is, is safety and you know what the connected features are. Again, it might not matter as much in Europe or the United States, but that's okay because where China is going to be strong in Europe and the United States is on the lower price point vehicles. And I do see potentially one or two Chinese EV companies start shipping to the United States. I'll, I'll predict that in 2024. We'll finally have a reconciliation about the clear advantage that China has on batteries to the rest of the world. We'll see likely a couple more announcements in Europe and the United States of Chinese battery companies building factories or partnering on building uh, capacity for batteries in the local markets. Maybe we'll maybe towards the end of 2024 we'll see a we'll see a model 2. <laughs> That's probably my biggest biggest um, bold prediction. So that is a that is a great crop of predictions. Thank you so much. And and thank you for all your ideas today. Really appreciated them.
Hey, um, Katrina, always good to talk to you. So, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll catch up next year and see. Well, hopefully before, but we'll catch up next year as well and see how much of that came true. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to Tu, you'll be very pleased to hear that he also hosts a podcast called China EVs and More, which does exactly what it says on the tin and does it very well. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our sister podcast, The Newsroom, and read our stories on breakingviews.com. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.